So, Prabhupada's translation, um, Lalita means attractive, gutti movements, vilasa, fascinating acts, Volguhasa, sweet smiling, pranaya, loving, nirikshana, looking upon, kalpita, mentality, urumana, highly glorified. The next verse, actually the uh, Sanskrit editors and the VBT made a mistake in the Sanskrit, which I, of course makes me very happy to be able to point that out. Um, actually what it should be is, oh, I guess we're not looking at that now. You go back to the verse, whoever is doing this. Yeah. yeah. When you look at the third line, it should be, the hyphen should be after the M. It should be kritam anukritavatya, which in Sanskrit, kritam means active actions, what Krishna did. And anu means following. So the, and anukritavatya, the gopis did what Krishna did following him. In other words, they imitated him. So the hyphen should, the M is actually kritam anukritam. So... Uh, you should, you should get a refund if you bought one of these. <laughs> Just kidding. But I'll have to write a little bit of BBT. So, um, Unmada, Unmada Andaha. Gone mad in ecstasy. <coughs> Anda literally means blind, like Omagyana Timira Andhasya. So, <coughs> Unmada. Mada in Sanskrit, we still have in English, it means mad, like mad. And then un sort of means up. So when you really go mad, it's unmada. I mean, really just... And so unmada anda, the gopis became, in a sense, blinded. In the sense, they couldn't see ordinary things around them because they were so filled with ecstasy and love for Krishna. And um, prakritim agan. Literally, you can understand that ga in Sanskrit is just English go. That's where the English go comes from. So agan means that literally they went, prakriti to the nature, they went to Krishna's nature. Because they were so absorbed in Krishna, they just went to his nature or became absorbed in Krishna's own nature. Prakriti agan, kila, indeed, certainly, jasya, gopa, vadvaha. So jasya means of whom, they went to the nature of whom, which means Krishna, gopa, vadvaha, uh, vadhu, like the gopis are called vraja vadhu, the, the girls of Raja, so this is just the plural of Vadhu. The plural of Vadhu is Vadvaha. So the uh, Gopa Vadvaha, the cowherd girls. So, Prabhupada's translation. <coughs> Let my mind be fixed upon Lord Sri Krishna, whose motions, uh, and sm that's Lalita Gati, his sort of, his beautiful movements, Gati. Let my mind be fixed upon Lord Sri Krishna, whose motions and smiles of love attracted the gam damsels of Rajadama, the gopis. The damsels imitated, that's Anukrita, Vatyaha, imitated the characteristic movements of the Lord after his disappearance in the Rasa dance, which is in brackets, which means it's not actually in the Sanskrit, but that's the idea. So, uh, Prabhupada's purport. By intense ecstasy and loving service, the damsels of Rajabhumi attained qualitative oneness with the Lord by dancing with him on an equal level, embracing him in nuptial love, smiling at him in joke, and looking at him with a loving attitude. The relation of the Lord with Arjuna is undoubtedly praiseworthy. Back to where it was. Is undoubtedly praiseworthy because of 
uh, is undoubtedly praiseworthy for devotees like Bhishmadev, but the relation of the gopis with the Lord is still more praiseworthy because of their still more purified, loving service. By the Lord's grace, Arjuna was fortunate enough to have the fraternal service of the Lord as chariot driver, but the Lord did not award Arjuna with equal strength. The gopis, however, practically became one with the Lord by attainment of equal footing with the Lord. Bhishma's aspiration to remember the gopis is a prayer to have their mercy also at the last stage of his life. The Lord is satisfied more when his pure devotees are glorified, and therefore Bhishma Dev has not only glorified the acts of Arjuna, his immediate object of attraction, but has also remembered the gopis who were endowed with unrivaled opportunities by rendering loving service to the Lord. The gopis' equality with the Lord should never be misunderstood to be like the Sayuja liberation of the impersonalist. The equality is one of perfect ecstasy where the uh, differential conception is completely eradicated for the interests of the lover and the beloved become identical. And of course, this is something that we experience, in, well, or that we know about. When two people become very attached to each other or fall in love, as they say in this world, um, there's a sense of oneness. There's a sense of being one thing, a couple. So, Lalita Gativi Lasa Valguhasa Pranaya Nirikshana Kalpitoru Mana Krita Manum Kritam Anukrita Vatya Unmadandha Prakriti Magan Kila Jasya Gopa Vadva. So, these are the prayers of Bhishma, and this is really the art of dying. Um, Krishna says in chapter 8 of the Gita that uh, the one who remembers me at the end of life, the one who remembers me at the end of life will go to me. And whatever you remember, you will go to that. So here in the Bhagavatam, we are getting a powerful lesson of how to leave this world successfully. This is the perfect way to leave this world. And of course... Uh, we all have to give up these bodies. So uh, this is something we should all take seriously because we shouldn't think, oh, that could never happen to me. Uh, actually, it will happen to all of us, so that's the lesson here. Bhishma is a very interesting character because on the one hand, he's always, of course, recognized as a Mahajan. Gran uh, gente, isn't it? Mahajana. And... Um, and yet, he fought for the wrong side at Kurukshetra. And there are explanations for this, but they're, at least for me, they're never like perfectly satisfying why Bhishma fought for the bad guys. And so, uh, if we try to understand Bhishma, and we try to understand him as a great devotee, as a great devotee, as a Mahajana, uh, I believe, at least in his pastimes, I, of course, never speculate on the great devotees of the Lord because they are great devotees. And even the souls who played the part of Asuras in these pastimes, such as Duryodhana, ultimately have, obviously, an eternal relation to Krishna, not to speak of Bhishma. So we're not speaking about Bhishma's eternal position. We're talking about the role he played. And um, what I'm going to argue here, I guess. That's why I spent half my life arguing with someone. But So what I want to present here 
is at least in his pastimes, Bhishma actually evolves spiritually. And we can see that if we look at his behavior in the Mahabharata and the Bhagavatam, what's happening here. So to get into that topic, if we go back uh, three verses to text 37, Bhishma says something very interesting, which I want to focus on. He's glorifying Krishna. He says, uh, Swanigamam Apahaya, which Prabhupada translates, sacrificing his own promise. Of course, this is uh, one of the most famous aspects of this pastime of uh, Arjuna defeating Bhishma with Krishna's help. And that is that Krishna had promised not to participate directly in the battle. And yet when he saw his pure devotee in trouble, he did get into the battle. And it's not for nothing, as they say, that Krishna did this with Bhishma. There's a reason why Krishna specifically showed this uh, aspect of his love for his devotee, that he'll give up his own word to save his devotee. There's a reason why he did this in relation to Bhishma. Uh, so first, the word, uh, which Prabhupada translates, um, own truthfulness in the word for word in the translation, his, his own promise. The word is interesting. The word is nigama. The word is nigama. And, of course, we find the same word nigama in the third verse of the Bhagavatam. Nigama kalpa taror galitam falam. That Shuka spoke this uh, Shastra. Actually, let me see how Prabhupada translates the word nigama there, since this is the first canto. Um, and then we'll compare these two translations of the same Sanskrit word. In the third verse of the Bhagavatam, Prabhupada translates Nigama, the Vedic literature, the Vedic literatures, in the, in the word for word, and then in the translation, again, Vedic literatures. Nigama kalpa taror galitankalam, the, the ripened fruit of the desire tree of Vedic literatures. So how is the same word, nigama, translated uh, promise or truthfulness and Vedic literatures? And also the word, if you look at the word literally, ni has the sense of uh, to go down or into, and gama. So gama means going, so nigama, uh, it's sort of reaching the depth, going inside, finding the real truth inside of everything. The Vedic literature, and of course, another word for Vedic literature is agama, so like going right to the point. So it's very interesting that these two common Sanskrit words for Vedic literature, nigama and agama, it's just gama with different prefixes, um, both have the sense of going somewhere, that... Uh, that when you read these literature, sacred literatures properly, you actually, your consciousness goes somewhere and where it goes into the truth. So why translate this as promise? The obvious reason is because whatever Krishna promises, in fact, is Shastra. Whatever Krishna promises becomes a sacred truth. Because Krishna has this unique power, what's it called again in Sanskrit, that um, satya sankalpa, that whatever he determines 
whatever he resolves upon becomes true. So if Krishna desires something, uh, it becomes reality simply by... We sometimes imagine that will happen in our lives. In fact, there was some really kind of like goofy thing that went around for a while uh, called The Secret or something, where whatever you desire, you'll drink. Well, that does work if you're God. But if you're not God... I mean, we just had... We just had the World Cup, so everyone was, you know, trying to magnetically attract victory in the... But most of the, Almost practically everyone lost except one team. Anyway, so swa. Swa just means his own. Spanish su. So swa nigamam, his own... His own promise, which means that whatever he said is Shastra, is, an, is a truth. And so Apahaya, uh, rejecting, leaving off, literally leaving off or rejecting his own nigama, his own promise. And because Mat uh, Pratigyam, it's interesting, Pratigya means a promise actually. And this word is used in the Gita when Krishna says, Konteya Pratijanihi, where, which Prabhupada translates it, Konteya Arjuna, declare it boldly to the world. So that verb, Pratijanihi, is the same word as Pratijyama here. And so, in a sense, Krishna is telling Arjuna, uh, assure the world, promise the world. And so, here, Mat Pratijyam, uh, my promise, Ritam Adhikartum, Sansa is very interesting. Uh, Ritam means truth, like Arjun says to Krishna in the Bhagavad Gita, Sarvameta Ritang Manye. Manye is like mind, mana. I think that uh, all this is true, whatever you've said. Janmang Vadasi. All that you've told me, Krishna, is Ritam, is true. Sarvameta Ritang Manye. And so here Bhishma says that uh, Ritam, because Bhishma said that you know, Krishna will have to fight to save Arjuna. So, adhikartum. Kartum is the infinitive in Sanskrit, which means to do or to make. And adi means over. So, in other words, what he's saying is Krishna made my promise higher than his own promise. That's actually what he's saying. Because kartum means to make something and adhikartum means to make something above it. And interestingly, from the same root, of course, you have the word adhikara, which means, or, or adhikari, you know, honk if you're an adhikari. So, so the word adhikari, the word adhikara, adi, adhikari, or adhikara, actually means a right or authority. For example, Krishna says in Bhagavad Gita that, um, what does he say? Oh my God, I can't. Karmanyeva uh, adhikaras te. You only have a right, an adhikara. You only have a right to your, act, to your duty, not to the fruits. And so adhikara, which means to act above, literally to act above, also comes to mean in Sanskrit an authority, to have authority, to be able to act above, to have authority, and one who has authority, because as a brahmachari, as they say, you'll never get rich in the brahmachari ashram. And so, because brahmacharis, you know, they're supposed to live communally, and also brahmacharinis, which by the way is a real Vedic term, it's not a modern thing, brahmacharini. So if someone's a brahmachari or a brahmacharini, uh, you live communally. You don't own anything. I mean, theoretically. You don't own anything. And uh, 
you're supposed to act like a servant, which is, of course, very purifying. <laughs> you can get old after a while, but for some people. But, but anyway, um, but that's brahmachari life. It's good when you're young. So you don't own anything, and you, you just serve. So when you get married, which actually, in the Bhagavatam, is a step up from householder life. In the Bhagavatam, it's not that a brahmachari fell down and got married, which is sort of one of the urban legends among some people in ISKCON. But actually, in the Bhagavatam, when you, because we know that because in, this, in the um, second canto, in the description of the universal form, where the Vedic social order is mapped onto this body of the universal form, and so just as, for example, with the Varnas, the Shudras are the feet, and the Grihastas are the waist, which means they supply, you know, they're the productive class. Everyone else is just kind of getting a free ride. It's terrible, isn't it? But, so, because the Vanaprastha is retiring, and um, sannyasis, of course, they, they take donations. So, I always work that into all my classes. So actually, it's the Grihastas who um, support the society, and therefore, they're the waste of the universal form. So in the same way, the brahmacharis are the feet of the universal form because they're serving, they're humbly serving. And the, uh, wait, I'm sorry, I grouped up. Yeah, brahmacharis are the feet, grihastas are the waist, just like in the varnas, the shudras and the vaishas. So that's on the varna side, on the universal form. And on the uh, ashram side, it's the brahmacharis are the feet and the grihastas are the waist. So, according to that, you could say uh, sacred physiology or that uh, the, the universal form, getting married is actually because you're taking responsibility. You no longer live communally. You're supposed to somehow earn a living or uh, you have your own place for obvious reasons because when a man and woman live together, they need to live alone, you know, privacy decency and so and so therefore when someone gets married they're called a dikari someone who has taken on the authority to have their own life and not simply to live in a communal situation as a servant but now they have that authority so that same word is used here interestingly adhikartum so adhikartum is just the verb the infinitive in sanskrit to make authoritative or to act in that way. So what, our, what, so what Bhishma is saying by adhi, which means over or above, it's very interesting, this uh, prefix. You can meditate on it all day, right? This prefix, adhi. But for example, in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says, mayadhyakshena prakriti, by my super vision. So super is just Latin for the Germanic over, like oversight, supervision. Um... And the word for over, or super, which in Latin means over, is um, adi, adi aksha. Aksha means vision or sight. And so adi aksha literally means oversight in Germanic English and supervision in Latin English. So again, it's that same adi. And so here Krishna says adi kartum, last thing. I promise, I'll actually talk about Krishna, not just grammar, but... Um, even the verb krita, which means done or made or cartoon to do, we still have in English also, in English words like create, 
so the Kri and create is from Sanskrit. Anyway, so that's what Bhishma is saying, that Krishna wanted to make my promise, mat, mat, mat pratigyam, he wanted to put it above his own word. Even though, and, and to show how dramatic this is for Krishna to do, he didn't just say swabacha, which would be the normal way in Sanskrit, say his own word or something. But here Bhishma says swanigama, his own word, which is shastra. His own word that is Shastra, he placed my promise above that. And therefore, he, he came at me. So, and so to make my promise Ritam, truth. And he descended from his chariot. So now I want to speak a word about why Krishna specifically displayed this pastime in relation to Bhishma. And uh, the simple reason is that in his youth, Bhishma had a, you could say, a problem with, um, you could say, his moral philosophy. I don't mean to say he was immoral. That's not my point. But even in Western philosophy, it's understood there are different ethical or moral philosophies. That's one of the... Uh, you know, one of the main divisions of philosophy, the philosophy of ethics or moral. Morality, which means, you know, what should I do? What shouldn't I do? What is right? What is wrong to do? And Krishna calls this type of analytic intelligence buddhi. That's exactly what Krishna says in the Gita. Prabhrittin cha, nibhrittin cha, janan, that um, the asuras don't, no, not, that's not the verse. Uh, it's, um, that's the, it's in, um, Chapter 18, uh, verse uh, 30 through 32, where Krishna talks about buddhi, which means reason, analytic intelligence. That's what buddhi means. In the Gita, buddhi is analytic intelligence. You separate things and see the differences and what's right and what's wrong. And jnana, which Krishna describes from 18, 20 through 22, is sort of like worldview. These are the two ways of knowing called in Sanskrit samasa and vyasa. Some means together, like sankirtan, together kirtan, which we still have in English. I lied. Here's another grammar point, which we still have in English. Some, the sum, S-A-M in Sanskrit, which means together, sankirtan, came into English through the Greek as syn, S-Y-N, as in synthesis or symbiotic. Anyway, that S-Y-N from Greek is Sanskrit sum, S-A-M. So it means together, and V means apart. Did anyone here know Italian? No? Via, anyway. V means apart, and some means together. That's why you have some yoga connection and V yoga disconnection. So asa means placing. So some asa means putting things together. So when you put everything together and look at the big picture, your, your worldview, so to speak, synthetic knowledge, where you put everything together, that's jnana in the Bhagavad Gita. And when you analyze by taking everything apart and try to find all the pieces of things, which we sometimes do, that's called buddhi. Rational, analytic intelligence. To know what is to be done, what is not to be done. And so this, what Krishna calls sattvika buddhi, intelligence in the mode of goodness, uh, would correspond in the Western tradition to uh, moral philosophy. Or the philosophy of ethics. And there are different philosophies of ethics, whether you look at the 
Vedic literature or the West because some things are just true. It's like in Sanskrit, there's a word for blue and in English there's a word for blue because in all these different countries people actually notice there's a color which is blue. In fact, Krishna says, it's very interesting, Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita that, he says it several times, that knowledge, jnana, figuring the world out, comes from the material mode of goodness. Not the highest knowledge, not parangyana, not supreme knowledge, not the transcendental knowledge, but just a general wisdom about this world comes from the mode of goodness. It's interesting, that's why the Isopanishad says that to get liberated you have to, and, and, and achieve immortality, you must actually understand vidya, knowledge, and avidya, unknowledge or ignorance. And, and the Isopanishad actually says, avidyaya mrityum tirtva. By ignorance, one crosses over death. Did you ever stay up at night wondering what that means? But that's actually what the Isopanishad says. Vidyang cha vidyang cha jastad bedo bhayang saha. One who knows both knowledge and ignorance. And of course, you have to understand that in Sanskrit philosophical jargon, uh, avidya or ignorance means the material world, the ignorance. And then avidya mrityum tirtva. By this ignorance, or by under, in other words, by understanding the world of ignorance, one crosses over death. And vidyaya, by knowledge of the spiritual, amrita mashnute, one enjoys immortality. So, those all over the world, there have always been some people who are in the mode of goodness. And therefore, there is a universal knowledge around the world, which does not go all the way to understanding Krishna in his two-handed form, but in terms of basic wisdom, like you're not your body, and happiness comes from virtue, not from sense gratification. And uh, there's a, and, and all these things, the soul, there's a higher truth. You find that all over the world because there are people in the mode of goodness all over the world. I mean, the most famous quarterback in the NFL is a vegan, right? Tom Brady, you know that. Anyway, so, so therefore, it's not for nothing. It, it, there are for obvious reasons we find the same understanding of different approaches to moral philosophy in the Bhagavatam from Krishna. We find it in the West. That knowledge is there. And so therefore, we should not exaggerate the difference between Vedic culture and other cultures. Rather, if we want to build bridges, we should look for all the common points in the mode of goodness in every culture and then build on that to add Krishna which, by coincidence, is exactly what Prabhupada said when he came to America, just add Krishna. So if everything else fails, read the instructions. So now, looking at the different moral philosophies, there, uh, there's one called deontological ethics, or act-based ethics, and then there's what you can call consequentialism. So Bhishma, in the beginning, when he was young, he believed in act-based ethics, which Krishna rejects, by the way, as being foolish. And the famous German philosopher Kant also believed this, along with Bhishma. Act-based ethics means that certain actions are right and wrong regardless of the consequences. It really doesn't matter what the consequences are. The virtue or the 
evil of an act is in the act itself. So that according to Kant, or apparently Bijma, uh, if you live in Amsterdam in 1944, and let's say uh, there are some Jewish people hiding in the basement of your building, and some Nazis come to the door and ask, are there any Jewish people here? And let's say, we'll, we'll, we'll build this analogy in such a way that you know for a fact, you have every reason to believe rationally that if you lie and say that no, there are no Jewish people in this building, that your lie will never be detected. You are not putting yourself in harm, your family is not going to be in danger, no direct evil will come of your lying and the Jews will be saved. And so what do you do? According to Kant, you tell the truth. Yeah, they're right down there. You're knowing that they'll be killed. Now this is a common example given in Western philosophy classes at universities. And interestingly, Lord Krishna gives exactly the same example in the Mahabharata. So again, small world. And when Krishna gives the example, he's thinking of people like Bhishma. Krishna gives this identical example where he says that there was a sage, I just forgot his name, but it's a typical sage name. There was a sage who uh, was very proud of always telling the truth. Anyone asked him a question, he'd tell the truth, no matter what. He was a Kantian or, a, you know. So just like in the example I gave, there were these uh, murderous thieves who were chasing these innocent citizens to, to kill them and, and rob them. You know, dead men tell no tales. And so these, uh, these terrified citizens were running and they, 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 they ran through the ashram in the forest of the sage and they hid in the forest around there. So then the, the, the thieves came, the, the killers, and the sage knew who they were and said, have you seen any people around here? And the sage thought, I can't tell a lie, that's my vow. So he told them, yeah, actually they're over there. And the, the criminals went and killed them. And then Lord Krishna said, this is in the Mahabharata, Lord Krishna said that because the sage was true to his vow, and told the truth, he went to hell. And not only did he go to hell, he went to a really bad hell. I mean, it's, you know, you can actually compare hells. This was one of the really bad hells. Because he told the truth. And then Lord Krishna said, when you tell the truth and it causes evil, that is untruth. And when you tell untruth and it causes good, uh, take this with moderation on Sankirtan, okay? When you tell, if you tell something which is not true, and but it, it, it saves people, then it's not untruth. So, of course, you have to be very careful how you uh, apply this, obviously. But look at Bhishma. There's a famous scene when uh, Vyasa begot uh, three sons in... Uh, you know, when, when, when um, Pandu passed away, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, when Pandu passed away, then Vyasadeva came and begot three Kuru princes because it was a 
It was, it was an international political crisis because the Kurus were protecting the world and suddenly there was no Kuru ruler. And we know from Bhishma's actions that as regent standing in for the king, he could not actually initiate violence. He could not initiate warfare. And that's why the Mahabharata says, I mean, it's an obvious deduction because under Bhishma's regency, the world was going to hell. I mean, all these really evil leaders were invading other kingdoms and basically the world order is breaking down, even though Bhishma was the regent because he could not initiate violence, which is probably part of the vow he made to get uh, Satyavati for his father. So therefore, there was a need to get an actual legitimate Kuru prince and Vyastev came and begot uh, Dhritarashtra, Pandu, and Vidura. But it, and so everything looked good, except that... Uh, so, so then Pandu... Uh, wait, wait, I'm, I'm getting a little mixed up here. Um, I think I went too fast. No, that was later when Bhishma became... Okay, back up. Bhishma became the regent when uh, Chitrangada and Vichitravirya, the two sons of... Uh, Shantanu with Satyavati died. Because to get Satyavati for his father Shantanu, Bhishma promised never to marry and never, and never to become king. So when their two sons died, Bhishma couldn't take the throne. And so that's when Satyavati, who was practically younger than him, but still technically his mother, his stepmother, she, or she told him, you have to beget children, sons, with the widows of Vichitravirya, these Amba, Ambika, and Ambalika, which in Sanskrit means Amba, uh, little Amba, and little bitty Amba. Which is, that's actually what it means. It's like in Spanish it would be Amba, Ambita, and Ambitita. <laughs> actually. I mean, literally, that's what it means. So anyway, so, it's cute. So, and here's the point I wanted to make. So when Satyavati Earth, as, as really the, the, the queen mother insisted that Bhishma accept these two widows and beget sons, Bhishma gives this powerful speech, which when you look at it is really like, really Bhishma? Because he gives this powerful speech in which he basically says, even if the earth like blows up into little pieces, if the whole universe just turns into burnt pudding or something, I will not break my vow. In other words, he very explicitly insists that I don't care about the consequences. Or even if I care, there is no set of evil consequences. There is no amount of evil consequences that will get me to break my vow because me keeping my promise is more important than saving the world. It's morally more important that I keep my promise than that I save the world. And if you think about that, I don't think so. And that's what Krishna says. It's not me, it's not just me saying it, so don't throw your cushions at me. It's actually Krishna that says this. And that's why Krishna tells the story. No, it's not more important to keep your promise than to save the world, or even to save a few innocent people. It's not more important. And so that is why, getting back to this verse here, that that's why Krishna is showing Bhishma that I will break my promise to save the innocent. You are not willing to do that, but I am willing to do that. So this is really what's going on. And, uh, and Bhishma understood. 
So I'm not speculating on Bhisma's spiritual position as an eternal devotee of Krishna. But at least in the Mahabharata, you see he actually evolves in his understanding. Another example where Bhisma just totally didn't understand that you do what you have to do to save innocent people. By the way, there's, a, there's an incredible spoof on this in this classic movie from the 60s called Dr. Strangelove. And anyone see this? I mean, it's a hilarious movie. It's like an intellectual movie, but it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a legendary movie. But there's one scene, which is very much like this. There's one scene. There's this mad general, this like far-right-wing, super anti-communist general who decides that you know, the government's too soft on communism. He has to take matters into his own hands. And so he puts in the code to send nuclear bombers to, to dis annihilate Russia. And obviously this is going to trigger a nuclear war, the world's going to... But he's just thinking we've got to stop communism. So then the Pentagon just frantically sends uh, this attaché, it was Peter Sellers, who by the way used to read Prabhupada's books, sends this attaché to this general begging him, give me the code to call back these nuclear bombers. Give me the code, because the whole world's going to be destroyed. And... Uh, the only phone, his phone doesn't work, the only phone is a pay phone. And, and they haven't got change. So, I mean, the world's about to blow up. The whole world's about to be destroyed. And, and so this, this attaché is just going nuts. He's going crazy. And he's saying, he's saying here, shoot open this, this there's a Coca-Cola dispensing machine. He says, shoot open the machine and get some coins for the phone so you can call the Pentagon. And the general says, I can't do that. That's private property. <laughs> so it's the same idea, though. The, the, the sort of like clueless act-based ethics. And so another time when, when evil was caused by this idea and Bhishma was involved was the insult to Draupadi. When Draupadi was begging Bhishma to support her in the gambling hall, and Bhishma, who's, you know, he, he's a great soul, he obviously, he, Draupadi was like his granddaughter, and yet he actually got hung up on legal technicalities because, okay, you are not only a chaste woman, you're actually a goddess. Draupadi's not even like a human woman. She's actually a goddess. She was born out of a, out of a fire altar that didn't even have a human birth. Draupadi, a pure devotee of Krishna, who's being horribly offended and insulted, and Bhishma saying, well, we need to look at the law to see technically whether I can help you here. I mean, think about that. Think, it, it's like the whole world's gonna blow up, but I can't, you know, I can't break open that Coke machine, that's private property. So it's kind of like that. So both in, in the case of marrying the widows of Vichitravirya, in the case of saving Draupadi, this pure devotee of Krishna, Bhishma actually thinks he's got to follow technical rules rather than save innocent people. And that's why Krishna tells this story like, no way, no way. And so thank God we have a God who has common sense. Because if you look at some religions, they have gods that don't have common sense. Like gods that give eternal punishment and other 
totally uh, sociopathic activities. So, I mean, thank God, God is not really a sociopath, as some you know religions would have us believe. So by this point, by this point, uh, Bhisma is learning, and so he actually wants to induce Krishna to break his promise. It, it, it's Bhisma's way of saying, I get it. I get it. I understand now. Because I want you to do it because you are God. And remember that Krishna, or that Bhisma used the word nigama, that whatever Krishna says or does becomes Shastra. And so Bhisma wanted to enshrine the true moral philosophy in Shastra by inducing Krishna to break his promise to save Arjuna. As Bhisma did not break his promise to save Draupadi. So Bhisma has really evolved here. And if you look at the whole history, then you understand what's actually going on. So, uh, thank you all very much. I'll stop here before... Uh, yes. Oh, could you speak loudly? Yeah, uh, you mentioned about how one has to please Krishna not be so much on certain laws and moral principles. So could you not give an example how a devotee should uh, just do the right thing and forget this, uh, of this that, of that law, for example? That's a very good question, and I'm uh, very sorry you asked that. It's, okay, the question was, could I give and, you know, cause my latest scandal in ISKCON. Could I give an example of a situation in which it would be appropriate for a devotee to put aside some rule or principle in order to save people? Is that the idea? Yes. Well, I can give examples that Prabhupada authorized and uh, not get in trouble myself. Prabhupada, for example, sent his wonderful disciple Tamal Krishna Goswami to China. And Prabhupada was also aware that devotees were going in behind what was called the Iron Curtain. If you're young, you may not know what that is, which is astonishing. But, you know, during the Soviet Union, they actually snuck into the Soviet Union in order to preach. So going into these countries to bring Krishna consciousness is an example of that. Is an example of not following strictly rules. As far as nowadays, we live in such a permissive world. We live in such a permissive world that it's, it's almost like too much is legal, not too little. But as, as far as our situations, um, yeah, okay, I'll give one example, which is sort of, you know, a little indirect, but I think is reasonably on the point. And that is that, well, again, I'll, I'll start with Prabhupada and then, you know, give a few more examples. Prabhupada once said if someone's an alcoholic, they should think that Krishna is a taste of wine. It's interesting because Prabhupada came from an India which was so strict that he didn't even say whiskey, it's like wine. You know, if you're if you're if you were sinful back those days in India you would drink wine. Which in America is almost like lemonade. <laughs> so so obviously, Prabhupada is not encouraging people to drink wine, but he's saying, wherever you're at, start there and see Krishna there. So Prabhupada was often very liberal. I mean, Prabhupada knew when to be strict, he knew when to be liberal. When I took sannyas, uh, one of the, 
first letters I wrote to Prabhupada after taking sannyas in 72, oh my God, that was 46 years ago. I took sannyas, by the way, when I was three years old. So, I'm the, I was the youngest sannyasi in Gaudiya Vaishnava history, and my, my dunda was like about that big. But anyway, when I, when I took sannyas, I wrote Prabhupada a letter, and I told him that I was going to preach at the universities in America, and Prabhupada immediately wrote back to me and said, do not present Krishna consciousness as rules and regulations, which is why it's so popular to present the four principles at Sunday feast lectures. So Prabhupada said, do not present Krishna consciousness as a bunch of rules. He said, it's the most sublime philosophy. So, and, and Prabhupada himself is very merciful. Obviously, in a temple, or those who are actually representing Krishna in a priestly capacity as Brahmins, they have to strictly follow. They have to strictly follow because they're in that high position. But in terms of bringing people to Krishna consciousness, even Prabhupada saying that just add Krishna, you don't have to change your life. I mean, of course, he meant externally. And, and if you, because Prabhupada knew that it, it's just a, a, a necessary principle that if you grow, you outgrow. You can't grow without outgrowing. And so therefore, Prabhupada wrote to me as soon as I began my illustrious sannyas career, which was, you know, my uh, very clever business plan, take sannyas and iskan. But anyway, so, because Prabhupada knew that if we just positively present Krishna consciousness, if people somehow become attached to Krishna or the friendship of devotees or prasadam or dancing, whatever, as they start to grow, they will outgrow these things. You know, parents, loving parents, don't go up to their kids and rip the toys out of their hands and smash them on the floor in front of them and say, grow up. You're six years old. You know, that they don't do that. If, if, if children get love and education and proper boundaries, they automatically outgrow these things if they're, you know, physiologically, neurologically normal. Then if they're given love and education and boundaries, they will automatically outgrow these things. So Prabhupada emphasized this, that, and so we're not cheating people, but it's, so Prabhupada said, just add Krishna. It's all you have to do is add Krishna. Because he knew that people would outgrow this. As you can see, I'm avoiding more controversial things like, uh, you know, break into people's homes, steal their money, and use it for Krishna. Uh, because we no longer think that we, we should do things like that. We actually never, we really only broke into their gardens and stole their flowers. There was one glorious moment where the devotees totally stripped the famous rose garden at the Palisades Park in Santa Monica, one of the great days in Gaudiya Vaishnavism. Anyway, so any other question? Yes. Briguji. Okay, Prabhupada, Prabhupada confided in a devotee family in Calcutta, or a family in Calcutta, I should say, 
who were actually old friends of Prabhupada, I mean, you know, from way back. And, and so, and, and one senior Vaishnavi in ISKCON was there when they were talking, and they were speaking in Bengali. And then afterwards, she asked these people, what was Prabhupada saying? And Prabhupada said that uh, his movement grew so fast, he didn't expect it, and he was just sort of trying to keep things going because it was, and because Prabhupada, you know, I mean, from the very beginning, Prabhupada wanted to just retire and write books. Prabhupada did not want to become the manager of ISKCON. He dreaded that. And, 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 and if you look at, for example, Mukunda Goswami's biography of Prabhupada, which is a great book, um, you see that Prabhupada is more than happy just to be the guru. And it's the Western, it's the American devotees are figuring out where to open temples, what neighborhood to open a temple, how to reach Western peoples, their idea, you know, the peace formula because of the war thing, so Prabhupada did that. And Prabhupada was delighted just to be what he had been since he took sannyas, just a guru, spiritual leader. But then ISKCON grew so fast that it actually grew beyond the maturity and the ability of his disciples to manage. And so if you look at ISKCON history, and, and so quickly it came to the point where Unlike in the past, where they had these nice little centers in New York and San Francisco and Montreal, and the devotees were doing nicely, it grew so fast, there were so many people and so much money, and especially in book distribution, where, I mean, ISKCON grew exponentially, that his disciples could not manage it, and Prabhupada had to re-engage, and he hated it. It's not that Prabhupada wanted to be in that position of managing. In fact, he kept saying, get me out of here. I want to sit down and write my books. I don't want to be doing this. So the reason I mention this is because Prabhupada, as he presents himself, I mean, Prabhupada says this over and over, he was, I mean, he's a pure devotee. There's no question about that. Prabhupada actually in Los Angeles, right upstairs here in his room, told me personally, privately, that uh, he, he was an eternally liberated soul. He privately told me that. And when he told me that, it, it was such a powerful statement that, I mean, I could practically see it because Prabhupada had extraordinary potency. So we're not talking about Prabhupada's status as an eternally liberated devotee. But Prabhupada himself said that, the pure, he said, if you think a pure devotee is materially omniscient, you don't understand what it means to be a pure devotee. That is a philosophical misunderstanding. That's what Prabhupada said. And so Prabhupada, if you look at him in the real world, he had tremendous agility, he was extremely intelligent, even materially, and he was constantly trying things out. I mean, look in India before he came to America, he thought, okay, let's do a League of Devotees in Jansi, because Prabhupada, you know, during his life, they had the League of Devotees, a League of Nations, after World War I. And so that was the model. So Prabhupada said, okay, we'll do a League of Devotees, in Jansi, and he was, that was, he was into it. That was his program. That's the way he was going to spread Krishna consciousness, except it didn't work. You know, the building was taken away, and he could have just stayed in Jansi and looked for another building, but he shifted gears. No, he, at one point, I thought this was the way to go, but I don't think that now. And so then he went to Delhi, and he printed a sheet back to Godhead, and he went around himself, had, had heat stroke, and he's working very hard, giving out his, his, his back to Godhead, and then he came to a point, and he thought this is the way to go. But then he thought, no, it's not working. 
It's not, I mean, obviously, some people were taking the sheets. Obviously, he had friends. He was meeting people. It's not like no one gave him the time of day, but he had bigger plans. So then someone said to him, well, people take books more seriously. So he went to Vrindavan, and he, he did the Bhagavatam, first canto. And then he gave it to prominent people in India, like the prime minister. There's a famous picture, probably. But that wasn't working either. Not to his satisfaction. So he thought, well, I'll go to America. And then he came to America and he went to Butler. And if you read all the biographies of Prabhupada, when Prabhupada was in Butler, Pennsylvania, it's not that he got there and immediately said, I gotta get out of here, you know? Oh no, stuck in old Butler again. <laughs> stuck in old Lodi, you know that song? Anyway. So, um, so if you look at the biographies, Prabhupada's in Butler and he's, he's working out of Butler. Butler is his base. He takes a little trip to Philadelphia, speaks at the University of Pennsylvania where he met Thomas Hopkins. He speaks at the YMCA in Butler. And it's only after some time passes that Prabhupada realizes the world revolution is not going to start in Butler, Pennsylvania. So he decides we have to shift gears again. Of course, Prabhupada grew up in one of the biggest cities in Asia, Calcutta. So he thought, I'll go to the Big Apple. You know, he went to New York. And then when he went to New York, at first, he's living with and working through the auspices of uh, Dr. Mishra. And again, when Prabhupada's working with Dr. Mishra at first, he thinks this is a plan. This is a plan. And after a while, he realizes it's not a plan. Because he's too limited in what he can say, which Prabhupada would never tolerate. And, you know, he's trying to light a little Vaishnava fire and he's living with someone who keeps pouring, putting the fire out because he's preaching you know, a wrong philosophy. And so it's after a while that Prabhupada sees this is not the plan. And I mean, we can go on for Prabhupada's whole life. I was personally with Prabhupada in so many of his morning walks. There was a time when Prabhupada, his big thing was the In God We Trust political party. And by big thing, I mean every morning walk that's what he wanted to talk about. And he started the party and some devotees became candidates, Balavant in Atlanta, Amarendra in Gainesville. But then he began to see there was a social dynamic taking place that some people who were in temples doing Sankirtan were starting to shift to the political work and it was, that was affecting the temple economies. And then Prabhupada said that we cannot do this through the temple. We cannot do this through the temples. It has to be another structure. And in those days, I mean, there was no other structure, so the God We Trust party kind of ended there. But at one time, it was Prabhupada's main idea. And then he stopped it because he saw the consequences. So Prabhupada was constantly shifting strategy when he saw consequences. That's the real Prabhupada. And so at one point, he thought, okay, there's all these brahmacharis, they are uh, doing fantastic service, so why get entangled? And Prabhupada himself never really wanted to get married, but he lived at a time when, you know, that's what you did. And his father told him, his parents told him to get married. So, um, but if Prabhupada, you know, when Prabhupada saw that brahmacharis were not making it, he would insist they get married. And if Prabhupada would have stayed on the planet longer and seen very large numbers of brahmacharis not making it, he would have said, you know, most of you guys need to get married. There was a time when Prabhupada insisted, insisted, 
that little children be sent to the Gurukula. And then, you know, results started to come in because Prabhupada, as a pure devotee, trusted, he loved his spiritual children, he trusted them, and a lot of them betrayed that trust. And obviously when Prabhupada saw, if he had seen the consequences, he would not have continued sending letters saying everyone send their kids to these people. So again, you know, in my view, what Prabhupada really needs from us is that at a certain age, you know, you're a senior devotee, at a certain age, we have to be adults. And what we need to do is, obviously, strictly follow Prabhupada's teaching, strictly repeat his message, work within his ISKCON, and at all the basic principles, strictly follow Prabhupada. We are followers of Prabhupada, that's who we are. But in cases where something is just, you know, not working, we need to make an adjustment. I mean, it's funny, because even the most conservative devotees in ISKCON, their, their instructions, direct instructions from Prabhupada, right in the Bhagavatam, not even a letter, saying, send your kids to Gurukula. So after all these, you know, Gurukula scandals became public, how many conservative leaders in ISKCON sent their kids to Gurukula? Like, hardly any. And yet, there it is, right in the Bhagavatam. So, what I'm saying, liberal or conservative, everyone in their own way is making practical adjustments uh, within Prabhupada's instructions. And Prabhupada, his genius is, among other, I mean, there's many aspects to his genius, but one aspect of Prabhupada's genius is that he gave us enough instructions so that we can find the right thing to do within Prabhupada's instructions. And of course, the quickest way to become stupid is to be fanatical. Fanaticism is the, you know, the quickest road to stupidity. And so we actually have to look at everything that Prabhupada said and you know, see what works because Prabhupada gave us enough instructions to make relevant adjustments. And that's why it's so dangerous. Take one statement from Prabhupada on a practical matter and just run with it, you know, run it up the flagpole because you can bet your bottom dollar that there are other instructions from Prabhupada on that same topic for other circumstances if it's regarding practical situations. And so ISKCON needs to have the same flexibility that Prabhupada used and Prabhupada actually gave us the foundation so we can be flexible and strictly follow Prabhupada's instructions if we look at the whole picture. So may I'll stop there. Thank you all very much. Hare Krishna. And thank you all on Facebook. See you guys later.